0: The teaching text is coming from the book of John, chapter 4, verses 1 through 38. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You and a Jew... You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus said to her, "You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have 5 husbands, and the man and now and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just ha- said is quite true." Sir, the woman said, "I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on the mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem." Woman, Jesus replied, "Believe me, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. This is the word of the Lord.
1: I bring my daughter here now, once a year or so. The well still runs clean as ever, though the rest of the place is a mouthful of dust. They say Jacob the worm, dug it himself, the con artist, God wrestling, sheep painter himself, dug a well in the middle of four other perfectly good springs within half a day's walk. He sure knows how to stay alive. I can respect that. Don't mess with the water supply of your enemy if you can dig a perfectly good well right in the middle of them. We come back to this place whenever we are nearby, though it does sometimes require a special trip. We don't live here anymore. <laughs> I never pictured myself living in Sikhar in the first place, I guess. It was just a place that life had deposited me like something thrown onto the shore after a storm, only there was no ocean, just sand as far as the eye could see. (laughs) I remember the day in detail. It is different from any of my other memories. It it hasn't really faded in all these years. I, I have told my daughter this story many times, but I include more of what really happened where I really was now that she is older. A daughter can often tell when her mother is holding something back. <laughs> I saw his group, his little band of followers dragging along towards sicker proper as I was on my way out. There was a bunch of them, and I, I almost hid somewhere till they passed, meaning to listen. I knew somehow they weren't any danger. They were like an exhausted hive buzzing over one another, arguing about where to find white fish on a At noon anyway, not to be noticed. Not that I cared so much by that point, but it wasn't worth the energy. And I hated people's looks, hated the thought of trying to explain myself. The middle of the day was safe. The morning crowd was gone, and it would be hours before the evening group ventured out once the heat had receded. I told myself I didn't mind the heat. We are always choosing what we can take, I suppose. He looked more exhausted than his group that I'd seen on the road. I barely noticed him at first, even though there was... Almost never any men at the drawing places. He he had nothing, much less a bucket, just almost a shadow over him at first. As soon as he spoke, I knew he was a Jew. And not from nearby, but north perhaps, by by the lakes on on our, our side of the river. He asked me for a drink. Now, you have to know what this was like. I, I don't fault someone for going through a hard time. I, I knew enough of that myself, and, and I don't care what he looks like or, or smells like. He'd been outside for weeks on end, but I know men. I don't know what he's playing at at first, but I am not a fool. And this is just not done not some out-of-towner looking like a second-rate rabbi on a camping trip asking me for a drink, not a mile from Sikkar, anyway. I snapped at him. People need to know you won't be taken advantage of. But as soon as I did, I was taken aback. I am not trying to be mystical or anything, but there was some kind of look on his face, and I knew I really didn't need to be harsh. His response to me seemed tired, resigned even, but he was matter-of-fact about it. I can't forget it. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Who says that? What does that even mean? Homeless man with no bucket talking about living water. But I am telling you, as sure as I am standing here, that there was a thing about the way he said it that made you curious. Now, I am not very religious, especially at this time, you see, but I know enough to hold my own. I know this is Jacob's well, and even if he was a Karn artist, he was a hero too. And I I know the things people argue about in the pubs and the synagogues. Where's the true temple? Who gets to say what's what about everything and on and on? And I thought, maybe this man just wants to argue, and it doesn't matter with who. But then it was like the blood came back to his face, and he looked me right in the eyes, calm as anything, and he says, like it was yesterday, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Right as about 15 things ran through my mind to tell this lunatic what I really think, I stopped. I do not know how to explain it exactly, and this sounds ridiculous, but I couldn't fire back. I couldn't make fun. I just sort of shifted on my feed and took the words as if they weren't crazy. I said, fine, give me the water. And I am not exaggerating. I know it sounds, how it sounds to say, but the words had water themselves. The more he spoke, the more I knew I was the one who should be asking, not him. He wasn't strange about it either. Just matter of fact, I was like a stream of words rushing water. And suddenly we were talking about my life, the real things and All of the men I want to forget, and each new start being just like the last one, and I am out here in the middle of the day because I am actually hiding, but it doesn't even matter. I chose to say, which is, I have heard a rescuer is coming one day, and this ragged, parched man now looks alive again somehow, like he's standing up straight just from talking with me, and he tells me he is the one they've been looking for. How does someone say they are the Messiah with a straight face? But there it is. That's what he said, and from everything else, I just felt like I could believe it. Totally impossible, and just as true as being thirsty. I can tell you I didn't even care that this bizarre prophet man knew my secrets. It was like he didn't mention them for the pain of the exposure or for being right, but so I could know in some way that I wasn't alone. However much I felt alone, I don't know how long we had been talking. It, it could have been 10 minutes or 10 hours, but his friends came back, and it sort of felt like being caught. Some space in time that was held open for this one conversation went away, but it was enough. I knew something was different. I, I moved back and walked towards town stunned. forgot the water after all that the last thing i heard him say was he turned down his lunch i spoke about him back in cigar tried to say what had happened and how he still might be out there and as unbelievable as anything else that had happened that day people believed me they went to look for him he stayed in Sicker for two more days. No one stays there. I don't even stay there anymore. <laughs> Whatever his secret was, we began to believe him. I went to the well the next morning. Not in the middle of the day, in the morning now. With everyone else. I was not afraid, and I carried my two buckets home. I didn't mind at all when they splashed. And that is a thing I want my daughter to know.
2: Ah, Morgan, goodness, yes, let's give, so beautiful. Uh, A few years back, I heard a uh, Christian philosopher, Jamie Smith, uh, give a lecture on developing a healthy imagination. And he was describing imagination in a way that made me curious. He was, he was describing it like uh, more than just um, a childlike capacity for fantasy. Though, of course, that is part of, of imagination and an important part and something we couldn't do without. Um, but he said imagination is not just stuff we make up. It's also how we come to understand the world. It is a uh, preconscious faculty. Uh, by which we make sense of being human and make sense of being human in a world like the world we're in. And I understood that on some level. Like, like uh, when you're moved by something truly beautiful, you might not be able to give five reasons uh, why, but you still know it's important to you. Our imagination, or sometimes um, what gets talked about in the scriptures, our heart and our imagination can be uh, uh, interchangeable ways of of thinking about this. Um, It's this important layer uh, in there with our instinct and our intellect, but it's it's different. Maybe it connects them. We begin to, to fashion shapes and images that tell us about our world, what is and what could be. Your imagination or your heart uh, traffics in story, works in beauty, is moved by images, clings to myths, holds on to legends, goes back to your favorite stories over and over again. This is one of the things I've been baffled by with each of my four children is their capacity to hear the same story over and over again, literally as soon as you finish it again. That's something to do with imagination, the capacity to hear the same thing and not get bored, but to put layers in it. In fact, I want to say that what we imagine a good life to be is more likely connected to this, our imagination, a collection of stories. And fragments and pictures and and places and pieces of ideas that you've collected over your life. For most of it, it's it's something a little bit different than just a well-rationed thesis that we can articulate at any given moment. And that means for me, and I think for you, that I need to pay attention to the stories that I allow to shape my unconscious life. I need to pay attention to my imagination. I think about a healthy body, I think about a healthy spirit, but I don't often think about a healthy imagination. Where is what is important to me coming from? And my imagination is a gatekeeper in that process. This week, I, I finished a, a biography or full confession. I'm, I'm half an hour away on the audiobook, but it's nine and a half hours, so it feels like I've come a long way. Um, I, I, a biography of a man I deeply respect, Eugene Peterson. The book is called A Burning in My Bones, and um, I love a, a great biography because it lets you in on these moments where imagination is shaped, where a person is changed, where uh, something that you would never know was a crucial detail of how they became the person they became is unveiled to you in the telling of their story. And, and you, can, you can trace some of the threads that are woven into um, what eventually became their greatest hopes. Like, how did this man come to picture his version of the good life? How did he come to have shaped what he was going to aim at most deeply in his most profound hopes, even if he failed at those in some, some way? What changed my hero? <laughs> what made them into the person they became? How was their imagination or heart formed? These are important questions. The story we have from the scriptures and an epilogue from Morgan uh, that Morgan read has two, has, has two people who are changed by the end of the story, And that for us, for, for many of us, is an important part of what makes a story a story. is How does the person involved in the tale change by the end? And if there isn't a change by the end, many times we sort of stand at a distance from the story because we're not drawn in by it. The piece that Morgan performed for us was an attempt to imagine this woman uh, years after this encounter with Jesus at the well. That's probably clear to you. But how was she changed and why? And I want to give that to us as an encouragement for a way that you can read the scriptures um, that that it's not just something that we have to read devotionally like how does my heart need to be altered today or how does my, my thinking need to be changed that, that you can enter the story and I, I think maybe many of you already know that but I just want to encourage us that this is, this is um, really deeply rooted in the tradition of how the scriptures have been treated from the beginning is that um, it, it wasn't like people got this text in a nice leather-bound book that had verse numbers attached to it. In the beginning, it was stories that were told around the campfire that you could enter, that were told in your home that you could enter. And eventually, as we come to read it, it's still meant to be stories that we can move into, that we can ask questions of, that we can be in, in conversation with. I think in a, a beautiful, important exercise from my own reading of the scriptures is to do just this, is to imagine responses to Christ to the moment that are outside the page. And that's not like adding something that's not scripture to scripture. That's just saying, what would it be like to truly be there? What would surprise you? If you've been in church a long time, one of the worst things that can happen to you is that you stop being surprised. You stop saying like a child, again. Because we know what to expect and we've drilled it all down and nothing is shocking us anymore. The woman changes in the story, but Jesus also changes in the story, which is something to wrestle with. I think it's something that's pretty beautiful. It's why this is one of my favorite accounts in the New Testament. Something happens to Jesus. He goes from exhausted and depleted to full, and, and joyful, and, and I so often feel the tangible need to make that transformation in my life. There are many times, sometimes multiple times in the same day when I wanna go from exhausted and depleted to full and joyful, and so mapping what happens here as one pathway for my imagination to see that transformation made possible is important, and I want us to see that together to invite us to be changed by whatever it is that changes Jesus and this woman. So just to to note a few aspects of what happens. We've been through the story twice now from the NIV and from an interpretation of what the woman's life might have been like during and after. But we start at the top with an exhausted Jesus and a hiding woman. And the NIV says, now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was gaining and baptizing some more disciples than John, a detail we fly past, but there's a lot in there. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples, so he left Judea and went uh, went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus tired as he was from the journey sat down by the well it was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water Jesus said to her will you give me a drink tired as he was from the journey now we know from the Christmas story that Jesus was really born as a real baby had to have his head held up had to be fed the king of the universe can't Hold his head up. That's a pretty interesting theological point in the Christian story. But here we have Jesus, Messiah, gathering disciples exhausted. And like, yeah, he's walking everywhere and in the influence off of his cousin John's influence and maybe trying to create a rivalry. And if you've ever been in a place where a spirit of rivalry is turned up, it is an exhausting place. It is a tense place. And so I think it's safe to say he was physically exhausted. I think it's also safe to say he was emotionally exhausted and that he was spiritually exhausted. Most of us, even if we've tried at some point, uh, don't know what it is like to be messiah. Savior of the world and to feel the divisions and to feel how slow it is. Sometimes I'll come home from, you know, a challenging week at church or whatever, and I'll say to Allison, I wish I just built houses so I could see there it is. The thing is done. And she's like, you are terrible at building things. And I'm like, okay, you did not have to get insulting, but yes, that's true. So maybe the house falls down, but there it is. I built it, okay? Because relational work is 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 fits and starts. It's growth and regression. It's not always easy to measure. Like, are we doing it? Are we doing it right? Is this happening? The pandemic has added tons of new questions. Like, Who is our church? Are we, are we the, the family we've, we, we were called to be? So you have Jesus, tired as he was from the journey. And then you have this woman. And we wouldn't necessarily know 100% if this is the first time we've ever read this text that she's hiding. But the detail that it was about noon is evidence that she was hiding the the the, the piece Morgan read. Um you know, brings that out. Or early morning and evening were the communal times. Wells were like coffee shops. It's where you go to catch up with people. Obviously, it's where you go to get this crucial sustenance for your life, for your family, for for your business. Um, But to avoid the heat of the day is to hide in the middle of the day. It's to make sure that you're not going to run into anyone and no one's gonna run into you. So this woman was willing to deal with the heat of the day in the desert in order to avoid dealing with her neighbors. And some of us know what that feels like. I'll go through a bunch of uncomfortable things not to be exposed relationally, not to have to face this person, not to have to face this shame. And so, again, I just want to keep in your mind, by the end, they're both going to be changed, the exhausted Jesus and the hiding woman. And so they go into this conversational dance. And I think it's a little interesting, if you're tracking um, John's gospel, the fourth one that scholars believe was written. So adding in crucial details to Matthew, Mark, and Luke's story of, 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 Messiah, of Jesus. And so John is an eyewitness, is putting really important details, and, and there are themes that run through. He is, a, he is uh, telling an organized story in an organized way. I think it's 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 important and interesting that right after the story Jackie taught us last week, which which was beautiful and brilliant, thank you, Jackie, lovely words, Uh, a a deep encouragement to be born anew, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and he's an influencer. He's a leader. He's a powerful man in a patriarchal society. And here you have exactly the opposite, a Samaritan woman hiding in shame in the middle of the day. Now, Nick was hiding at night. Maybe Passover and maybe they were getting loose, but she's hiding in the middle of the day. And Jesus keeps doing this thing where he gets right at the heart of people. He just, he's sort of able to like bypass the tricks and tactics of keeping things at the small talk level and go right to the heart. He does this with Nicodemus, um, and he, he goes right to like, listen, you have to be born in a new way, even as you're going through your life chronologically, something new has to happen in you where you become alive to the spirit and to what God's doing in the world. You remember the story, the rich young ruler comes up to him and he's like, these are the commandments that I've kept now, tell me that I'm, I'm justified, and he's like, um, take everything that you have and give it to the poor, and the guy walks away sad because he had great possessions, Jesus is able to identify that little sinew in the heart that is right at the place where our deepest affection is, where our true worship lies. He's making a worshiper of Yahweh out of this woman by the end, and he gets right to the heart. When the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. Now, Jesus begins by asking her for something. Nicodemus comes with his questions. Jesus comes with his question for this woman. So many stories begin with someone asking Jesus for or something. With all the tension going on in his life, all the exhaustion, here's Jesus asking uh, this woman that the world would have expected him to avoid, if not despise, and he's asking her for help, which is an important posture for our Jesus, <laughs> For Messiah. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So there's the, those, the woman aspect, which it seems the disciples are most shocked by. They've already been into town to ask some Samaritans for food. But he's talking to a woman as a rabbi, which is a, a scandalous thing. And he's talking to a Samaritan and she, she reminds him, hey, if you don't remember, we don't like each other. Tons of racial tension between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. Uh, we don't have to get into all of it, but after the exile to Babylon, when the Jewish people came back, um, the Samaritans were those, so uh, many of the like influential people were taken to the foreign country or killed, and so the people that were left were sort of dragging around, trying to you know, scratch out a new life, and um, the, the conquerors resettled foreigners in the land, and the, and the Samaritans are those who stayed and intermarried. And so you come back Rejoicing from exile, coming back to your home, and you find it's occupied by these people that you see as a distortion of the true covenant of Abraham. And so there was massive tension. Where do we worship? How is this supposed to work? And they truly hated each other. People would go across the river and all the way around to avoid going through Samaria, and yet Jesus chooses to pass through. It's the shorter route, but you have to think he had something else in mind as well. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you the living water. Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's going to say something similar later at the temple. Whoever's thirsty, come to me and drink, and and there will be a river of living water. Now, lickable water is literally life, and a source of that water is literally life. And so so easy for that literal life to become one of the most powerful metaphors of, of, of a story of, 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 of these people. And the woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. John's gospel has this massive theme of, of water all the way through it. I'm not, I'm not going to go all the way through, but you can trace it from the first chapter to the last, this theme of living water that goes all the way through the gospel of John. And I just want to tell you, I've been talking to our elders and deacons about this, been talking to our members about this. Um, I don't know how you feel about, about these types of things, but a couple of prophetic words have been spoken over our church. And um, one of them is that um, for years, many of us have experienced God's presence like a waterfall falling off a height above us, hitting the rocks and splashing us. And that's how we've experienced God's presence, being splashed secondhand, and that God is inviting this church under the stream of his presence, to experience and drink deeply from that living water. And then, as we drink deeply, that our lives are meant to flow with this living water. And there's a there's a picture of a specific ecosystem that our church is meant to be, a, a riparian zone in the world, where if you look from above, you've ever seen in, in like Discovery Channel those drone footages of a river going into an arid place in the green right around the edges of the water, that that's meant to be part of who our church is called to be, is to flow into areas of our city with the love of Christ and this living water. so I just want you to know if you're new to our church that's something we're trying to step into that you would drink deeply from the living water of God's presence and that your life would flow with those healing properties with that love wherever we go in our city and Jesus and this woman they seem to be talking at two different levels about what's going on she's like um, he's like "I, I can give you living water and she's like you don't have a bucket and it's like, that doesn't make sense, pal. And, 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 and he's saying, what I'm talking about, you could drink and never be thirsty again. And he's speaking, she's speaking at the level of just the natural, and he's speaking to, to her imagination. He's speaking to her heart. He's speaking to that layer between instinct and intellect. He's saying, I, I'm, I'm trying to tell you about your soul. I'm trying to tell you about the truest part of you. And she comes to this place where we don't know how much she understands or how much she even believes, but she's like, okay, fine. Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming out here. That's an important stop for many people in their transformation with God. A little place where they're like, I don't know if this is true, but it'd be nice. That'd be great if that was real, like that I could be loved that way and forgiven that way and filled with the spirit that way and, and belong in some place and have my sins forgiven and know that I have a future that cannot be, you know, that is never gonna perish, spoil, or fade. What an incredible thing to believe. You people believe that? Yes, that, and, and it can be true for you. And so it's a stop off where you're like, I'm not sure it's true, but maybe it is. And so Jesus goes for the heart again. He gets under the layers. Okay, go call your husband and come back. Let's get this sorted out for everyone. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you said you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the, one, and, the, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worship on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jackie mentioned this last week, but I think it's true uh, quite a bit when you're inter- dealing with Jesus' interactions. You want him just to tone down the harshness just a hair. Like, you get, this is a nicer way to say that, Jesus, about the five-husband thing? Like, maybe you could come around through the side door and just be like, what's your relationships like? But, it, but he's not like that at all. He seems to speak to people like um, a loving uh, but, but, like, clear father or mother. <laughs> like, in, in a, like, hey, let's just deal with the matter-of-fact stuff that's going on here. And so Jesus has what, uh, you know, if you grew up in a Pentecostal tr- tradition, would, would, would be a word of knowledge. He has a word of knowledge. If you grew up Presbyterian, he just had a sense. He had been in his Bible that morning. He had a devotional sense from the word. But either way, across the broad section of of the church, he has a sense of what's really going on with her. And this is a mature picture of a spiritual gift at work. And I want to tell you, because sometimes we, we just put Jesus at this distant place, but the baptism of Jesus and the filling of the Holy Spirit and showing that all of his ministry flows out of that, that spirit means that same spirit is in you and I, and that you can grow in the exact same gifts that Jesus walked in. As a matter of fact, Jesus seemed to be so enthusiastically positive about that that he said to his disciples, you're going to do greater things. Can we imagine Jesus uses this word of knowledge for love. Not to puff himself up. <laughs> Listen, you've been living in a string of broken relationships, the agony of that. Let's think about it. You're out here hiding in the middle of the day. He, he gives the insight, and then he he kind of leaves it, which is so hard for us. Like a lot of times, we want to use our spiritual gifts and and, and And say something like, "I've had this insight," and you share it, and then the person is not necessarily like crying, and so then you start adding to it, and like, and maybe it's connected to something with your mom and dad. Like, just stop, just say the thing you had and leave it, and let God work. You don't have to tie all the bows for everybody. And what does she do? Changes the subject. So understandable, a, a completely normal tactic. This, this happens all the time. You could be t- chatting with someone and, and you get to this vulnerable place and maybe you share some true part of your encounter with God and then the next thing they bring up is a controversy that they've always thought about the church. You know, it's like, I'm talking to you about how God, like, tenderly changed my heart and how I still come into terms with what, what grace is even all about, but somehow I can't live without it, and it's made me to feel like some, some kind of a new person. And they're like, you're telling me you believe in six days of literal creation? Have you heard of something called science? Or, or you know, that's a you know, kind of a funny one, but, like, down to, like, real hard, true Difficult things to contend with. Well, tell me what you think about the church like being this way to oppressed groups over and over again in history. What about that? That doesn't seem like the Jesus you're talking about. She goes for, uh, well, what mountain do you think we should be worshiping on anyway <clears throat> since we're out here? Those can be valid concerns, but it is telling when the timing of when they're brought up is um, Because I want to speak for myself, but maybe this is true of you. Many of us are masters of self-protection and self-justification, even if it means keeping a possibility of growing and changing at a distance. And so he says, woman, believe me, a time is coming when we will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. He's like, hey, the mountain question, not not for now. That's not what we're talking about. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Again, you're like, Jesus, just a tiny PR note here. Maybe not get into that with her. But... Yet a time is coming and has come now when true worshipers will worship the the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. So he's showing her a way to be alive as as, as a human being. Here's a way to direct your attention, to direct your affection, to order your loves, to to sort of pull in the threads of your imagination into a comprehensive and beautiful life. And that's what we talk about when we talk about a way to worship. We're not talking about a place you can just sing songs for a few minutes every week. We're talking about a way out of the deepest affection and attention and love of your life to order the rest of your life. Romans 12 talks about that's what worship is. It's to live in view of God's mercy as a living sacrifice, not just to sing the bridges of the best songs with goosebumps on your neck. to worship in spirit and truth. And the NIV does a slight disservice here because they're not two different things. It's two parts of the same thing, to worship in spirit and truth. This is the same spirit that Jesus told Nicodemus brings new life, brings new birth. And now he's saying, and it brings you into accordance with true reality, with the true way God has made the world. True worship, this is a life that is the opposite of the numbing and the hiding and the obscuring and the rationalizing and the telling ourselves a million false stories to not have to hear the truth. I'll just give you the bare bones of it. He says, you have a father. And this father loves you more like, than you could possibly fathom because he's seeking you to be a worshiper. And this is one of the, the things that... Um, you know, a bunch of people have wrestled with over the years. Like, is God vain because He's asking us to worship Him? Is He like needs like His ego puffed up by the songs of people across the generations? Why does God demand us to worship Him? And the the most satisfying answer to me is if I if I root the the possibility in God's love is that God is saying. Whatever you give your attention and affection and love to is gonna shape you and shape your story and shape your life. And I am the only thing that can bear the weight of your soul's deepest affections, hope, expectation, longing, and promise. And so if you set it on something else, even on your marriage relationship or your career, if you set it on anything else, even a good thing, you're gonna crush that thing. And so I'm saying bring your deepest hope, your longing, your love, your affection, your attention to me. And when you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, the rest of these things, things become rightly ordered it's not vanity that god asks us to worship him out of it is love you have a father who seeks you because he loves you and is offering to fill your life no matter what mountain or valley you were born in or are passing through and so the woman says I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Basically, like you can see another layer. She gets hit. Oh, worship in spirit and truth. What would that be like? And then you see her protect. Well, one day we'll, we'll, we'll know what it's all about, won't we? When I get to heaven, there's a couple of questions I want to ask the Lord. And you just, you, you push it on down the line. It's one of those, it's one of those tactics, like one of those self-protecting moves. And yet Jesus is like, you set me up perfectly. <laughs> we'll see one day, and Jesus is the one you're speaking to. I am he. Jesus is more clear with this Samaritan woman hiding in the middle of the day at the well than he is with almost anyone else. People keep trying to pin him down. Tell us who you are. And he's like, who do you think I am? You have said so. With her, he's like, I am he, right in the eyes. Just picture the moment, Messiah. Can you imagine God of the universe, all these promises, Abraham, I know our groups are split and and fraction and and intense with one another. I know we're exhausted and thirsty and you're hiding, but I want you to know God has come and he is seeking you and he looks her right in the eyes and says, I am he. Those words are an embrace and he's saying them to you as well. so the change comes and we look at the change the woman stops hiding she plunges back into relationships she wanted to avoid everyone now she's going back to Sikhar to tell them what's going on the thing she was hiding was her relational past the brokenness of the string of husbands that she's had and yet she goes back and the thing she tells people is there's a guy who told me everything that happened to me I'm like we well, you know what happened to you he said that well let's go find him She becomes an invitation to Jesus because he deals with her shame. And this is a, a thing that, that comes up over and over again in the church's story when God heals us and speaks life to us and forgiveness. That place of our deepest pain expands our compassion around that area. Oh, you used to have anxiety in this way, and God brought you through it, and now you're so much more tender. Little tears come to your eyes when you hear someone else telling their story. I was so there. Someone lost a child. And you know what it's like to be carried through that agony. And so you sit with them and you talk in a way that no one else can. There's a level of understanding that immediately comes. Where she was healed becomes the place of expanded compassion where she becomes an invitation to Jesus. And I want to tell you, church, that's our inheritance. To speak out of the place Christ has healed us and offer that same healing. Living water to our neighbors. But also Jesus changes and I love this. The guy turns down lunch. The disciples are annoyed. The little detail where they're like looking around like who brought him something to eat anyway? You know how far we went. White fish on a roll right here. You know how that hard hard to get in the desert. Who gave him lunch? Jesus is utterly replenished. I heard someone like a year ago use the phrase replenishment cycle, and I didn't know what that was, but I knew I didn't have one. <laughs> so I've been thinking about this a lot. I'm like, let me develop a replenishment cycle for myself. Like, I, I, need, I need, you know, like I did, I did Sabbath, but I was like, I need Sabbath. I need certain times of the year where I try to get away, and I wanna, I wanna learn, I, I, like I want to be, I want my soul to be replenished, and so often what I imagine will replenish my soul has something to do with escape and self-indulgence. And so for Jesus to be exhausted, and the only thing he does is have this conversational dance with this woman whose life is transformed, which in in my line of work is part of the work, and yet he's utterly filled up in his soul because the Father knows what will restore you better than you could possibly imagine. And yes, you need Sabbath, and yes, you need naps, and sometimes you probably need a cocktail and your Netflix show, but so often that's as far as we go with our replenishment cycle. I'm like, I need a new GPS watch if I'm gonna be fit this year. I gotta go to Puerto Rico on the credit card because it's February, it's 19 degrees. This is how my soul shall be restored. And Jesus says, what truly restores your soul? What fills you up? That's an important question that God cares a lot about for you. And so by the end, Jesus turns down lunch and seems like he has a new way of seeing the world that he wants his friends to get. And so he says, don't you have a saying, it's four months until the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields, they're ripe for harvest. He basically says, listen, there's a natural way of things. You plant a seed, you gotta wait four months till you get the fruit, right? Till the, till the harvest comes. But I'm telling you right now, that what God is doing in the world is so so profound and so immediate. And if you open your eyes, you will see there is, a, a, there is fruit here and now. If you will pay attention to the whisper of the Holy Spirit, there is fruit here and now that's part of your inheritance that you can bring in. The crop is available to you because there was people generations before you that were pray, praying in this spot for Brooklyn. There are people generations before you who sowed seeds of obedience that are now available to you. For many of us, the gap between the seed being sown and the harvest has already passed and it's available to us if we'll just pay attention, if we'll cultivate our imagination by the Holy Spirit and begin to see the things God is seeing and care about the things God is caring about. There's an exchange that this encounter, this conversational dance demonstrates is that we give what we have to Christ And Christ gives back what he has to us. And that is gospel. That's a way to say the gospel. Bring everything you have to Jesus and get everything Jesus has. And it's totally not a fair trade, but he's still up for it over and over again. As many people as will come, like, give me all of it the sin and the death and the brokenness and the distrust and the fear and, and the recovery and, and all of it, and I'll give you life and my spirit and a new identity and, and a future with me forever and a, and a way to share my inheritance of love today in Brooklyn in 2022, even in the middle of or tail end of this pandemic. God, please. That's what I'll invite you to today. What a morning, like we've seen babies committed to God. Uh, that guy, Jamie Smith said, the most profound witness of the church is her saints and her artists. I think Morgan witnessed to us today uh, a story that, that speaks to the heart. You know, he's, he's not saying, if, you're, if you don't, our life and our creativity testify to Jesus. So, I want to invite you today to bring to Jesus your imagination. Just close your eyes for a second. We're done. I'm going to pray in a second. But I want you to consider this that in this middle school auditorium, Jesus Christ is present. Conditions are a tiny bit more comfortable than that day at the well, but he is present. So I invite you to to bring Jesus your imagination. Bring Jesus your exhaustion. Physical, emotional, spiritual. Bring Jesus your shame. Bring Jesus your confusion. Bring Jesus your avoidance. And Jesus has some things for you. If you want to open your hands. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, I pray you would make a deposit in your church as we bring you what we have. May we receive living water. The Spirit. May we be those who worship you in spirit and truth. May there be true life and integrity with reality in how we live and worship? Would you give us your way to see the world? Would you heal our imaginations? Would you pour out your spirit without limit? What does it mean to drink and not be thirsty, God? I still want to know. Give us true life in Jesus. Amen. We've done this the last couple of weeks. I just want to give you a moment, about a minute, just to interact with Rabbi Jesus and ask, what can I bring and what can I receive today? And then we're going to go to the communion table together. So just take a moment. Don't stand up yet and just reflect and ask the Spirit to speak to you. Ask Jesus to speak to you. Church, we prepare our hearts to receive this meal of communion. As we prepare, if you need the elements, you can raise your hand and someone will bring them to you if you didn't get them when you were coming in. Coming down both aisles, just keep your hand up till you receive one. We consider this moment of Jesus with his disciples. Quite a while after the encounter we read today, but also as it's passed down to us through the generations, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim gospel today, this morning, in this meal. We bring what we have to Jesus, and we receive what he has for us. We bring sin and death and brokenness, and he gives us life and peace and forgiveness with him forever. So let's do this in remembrance of him. Heavenly Father, bless the bread and your cup and your church as she is nourished by this meal of grace. Amen. Church, receive the bread. And in remembrance of Christ, we receive the cup as well. On a level the entire service has been about this, but these last moments especially are for you to interact in a personal way with God who is present. So we're going to stand and sing, and singing may be the fullness of the appropriate response for you. But there will be some people who are up here, our leaders, you can go ahead and stand, um, who who would love nothing more than to pray with you today. to to stand with you as you offer something to Christ and then receive what Christ has for you. So if you wanna pray about anything you've heard today, um, there'll be people up at the front that would love to pray with you. We also have these rugs at the front where you can kneel, where you can sit, where you can just interact with God. However you are led, whatever way you respond, do not miss the moment now to truly interact with a God who is here and present and offering us life and life to the full. Let us drink deeply from this living water. In Jesus' name, church, let's worship.